And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. Are you capable of navigating the newer the new hire process? Are you any good at recruiting, assessing, retaining, or employing people? If you want to build a business and be successful, you're going to need to learn about everything I just mentioned and a whole lot more. Today, we're going to talk about navigating the new hire process. Before I mention, before I introduce who I'm having a conversation with today, if you are thinking about starting a new business or expanding a current one. If you are, then it's important to get it set up and maintained properly. That's exactly what the folks at UniversalRegisteredAgents.com do. You can find a link for that in the show notes. You do LLCs, S-Corps, C-Corps, non, no, nonprofits, no problem. You can learn more, once again, by clicking the link in the show notes. Also, information in the show notes about today's guest, and that's David Siegel. And David is a partner at Grella Shaw. It's a law firm. In Cupertino, California, does that ring a bell? That's where Apple, that's where Infinite Loop is. The uh, I think that's the street name. Was it one Infinite Loop? In Cupertino, California, right there in and around the world of tech and startups. So, David, welcome to Startup Hustle. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, let's go. Let's get our conversation started with you giving us a little bit of your own backstory. Yeah, sure. So um, I work at a law firm called Grilla Shah. We are um, in the heart of, you know, Silicon Valley. So the heart of startup land, though startup land has certainly expanded uh, throughout the United States and the world. And so of our clients, uh, in terms of what I do, uh, I represent uh, mostly tech related startups from kind of formation stage through their kind of maturity. Um, and that involves, you know, the big events like incorporating and funding rounds and M&A. But, you know, a lot of the day-to-day -day is talking to startups about more routine matters like how to handle employee issues, how to bring on employees, what it means to bring on an employee, um, when issues arise with employees. And unfortunately, when terminations happen, that is just part of the game as well. Um, and that's in any company, but that is, that is what we do. And we love doing it. It, it. Well, there's a lot to be considered. And that's why I said at the beginning of the show, if you don't have experience doing all this stuff, um, well, that's, <clears throat> that's a big reason why a lot of people hire my company because we help people build software teams quickly and affordably and, sure. and help you not have to deal <laughs> with that. So I, I said, recruiting, assessing, retaining and employing, which we, cleverly used the acronym rare for that, but it's rare when people are actually really good and experienced with it, especially at the base, at the beginning 
entry level phases. We talk about both being involved with startup and early stage businesses. Well, until you have experience doing something, you don't have experience doing it. And there's a lot of complexity that can go into it and consideration and just some of that's just basic humanity. Like you mentioned, like if something's not working out, like how do you let someone go in a way that's respectful, productive, and, you know, and, and with that. So when we talk about new, navigating the newer hire process, I mean, what, where do we start? Well, uh, the place to start is actually whether what you're doing is even hiring an employee and that, particularly for the earliest stage companies um, is an important question. And um, unfortunately one that more often than not is not answered correctly. Um, Tell tell me why. Yeah. So at, at base there's, you know, two categories that one can be slotted into and it's, is this person actually an employee or are they some sort of independent contractor? And the realities of a a lot of startups is they assume they're hiring the latter and an independent contractor when they're really hiring an employee and don't know it. Uh, Because to a large extent, because they don't have either the knowledge or the funding to, or sometimes even the time to deal with hiring an actual employee because employee employment is much less flexible um, than in, in hiring an independent contractor. Well, and that, and that separation between employment and contractor is pretty broad. There's, you know, there's a lot of things that you have to provide and are required. I, I, I run into the same issue a lot. And I was talking to a, a business owner the other day who like all of his people are quote contractors. And I was like, dude, if they're showing up and working for you every single day and, and, and like, you can't do that. You can't cause you're, you're misaligned with a lot of things that are going to get you in trouble. What are a few of those things like the, you know, that you, you, what are we trying to avoid by understanding the difference between an employee and a contractor? Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about what happens if you mess that up and it, just taking a step back, when when talking about the startup world, there's usually when you're in, in legal issues, you're usually talking about two audiences. There's if you screw something legally, is some agency or something going to come after? Is the government going to come after you for breaking some law? That's audience yeah. number one. Audience number two is if you're a, if you're going the VC route. Um, or M&A route is, are you going to get tripped up in diligence? Um, so it doesn't really matter if it, if no government agency would go after you, it's just as big a problem if a VC or an acquirer is not going to do business with you because you screwed something up. So that's usually, so I usually think that's a bigger talking, problem. That's a it bigger is problem. Actually in reality, the, it the is government, a will, the government will like give you a notice and maybe a small fine or something on the first one. But if you block yourself from being able to expand, grow, or provide resources for your business, that's way more devastating. That is true. That I fully agree with that, which is why I always separate out audiences because when we're talking about legal compliance and startups, it's just different than other businesses. But employment is the one area where there's a third audience. And the third audience are the people that you hire, because this is the one area of law that 
almost all startups get involved in where if you don't do things correctly, the service provider probably will be able to sue you. And it is one of the most litigious areas. It is not that hard for someone to get an, uh, a lawyer on contingency where they don't have, where the employee contractor, whatever service provider doesn't have to pay by the hour. Um, they're very easy to find. And there's also um, many states have ways to file complaints um, without a lawyer and have the, um, and, and get whatever it is they think they're entitled to. So um, when we're dealing with employment law, we're, we're dealing a lot with category three, like, are you going to get sued? Cause this is an area where you can get sued. Um, and so it's what, not what's unusual. the material nature of some of those suits. Like what are people getting sued for? How can we, how can we be a little more exact about helping our listeners uh, avoid some of the stuff? Yeah, so so most typically, to be honest, um, at the earliest stages, it's getting sued over the um, over whether somebody is an employee or independent contractor. That's where the lawsuits tend to usually be at the early stages, and they tend to happen, to be quite honest, when there's a when there's a relationship breakdown. Um, that in in the sense that um, everyone comes in perfectly fine with this being an independent contractor relationship when it's not, legally not, but nobody knows. And then there's a breakdown in the relationship and the service provider is unhappy with the company and then goes and finds a lawyer. And so there's a couple of ways of dealing with this. One is, I mean, the lawyer answer is don't make that mistake. If somebody, you know, figure out whether somebody should be an employee and then treat them as an employee, that is the the best advice I could give and the least practical advice that I can give, because the reality is, um, and, and we'll probably get here is that if you're hiring somebody as an employee, you have to pay them cash that you might not have. There's no pay them in equity is not, is not a thing under any law that is relevant to this area of the world. That's not, that's not proper payment for an employee. So, well, in, in some it, cases that could, some cases that could potentially create a tax liability for the person receiving equity. Oh, sure can. Because yeah. things that, that, that that's, a, that's an exchange of value yes. or services rendered, which is the definition of income. Yes. Yeah. That, that's something else that people don't always realize is that um, just because you're not paying someone in cash doesn't mean they're not taxed. If you pay someone in equity, you're paying them whatever the value of that equity is, and they pay tax on that the same way they would pay it in cash, yep. Um, yep. which maybe sometime down the road in this conversation, we could talk about 83Bs and w what those are for. But let's, I think, leave that aside for a moment. But um, so the first piece of advice would be if, if somebody's an employee, hire them as an employee and follow labor laws, which is... As I said, it's not necessarily that practical as a piece of advice, but we can talk a little bit more about that in a minute. There is, though, another piece well, of advice. I think it's super practical, yeah. David. It's it's a pretty well, it's, it's a pretty it's, it's a pretty it's a pretty well defined set of boundaries to work with. And now, granted, there's a lot of definition in there, but yeah, but you, you know, have there's to have not cash. a whole lot of true true. You have to have. It's all about the cash. You have to have cash, and if you don't have cash to pay people then maybe you take the risk of hiring them. It's not the legally right thing to do, but hiring them as an independent contractor. And if you are forced into that situation, just from practicality, 
Um, this all kind of harkens back to something you said at the beginning, because I mentioned the word terminations because lawyers always in employment things have to think about that. Um, but you talked about treating people with dignity uh, when you're terminating them. And this is, I mean, there are great ethical and moral reasons to treat somebody with dignity when you are terminating them. There are, there are selfish reasons to treat somebody with dignity when you terminate them. One being um, not incentivizing them personally to sue you. <laughs> you yeah. know, if things seem like they're breaking down, come up with, you know, be respectful in how you terminate them. Separation agreements or severance agreements, um, you know, of some sort. Um, if you can do it, make sense to have them release claims. Um, those are legally enforceable agreements that you can enter into as somebody's exiting if there's kind of a higher risk situation with someone. Um, so those are ways at the end to deal with the, um, to try to avoid lawsuits over this kind of thing. Um, and and you, they said, you said some, you said something earlier that, so I've got a little bit of a trigger uh, warning here. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned something about you bring in people on and things are great in the beginning. Uh, I talk about this a lot. So if you're going to have a good agreement with anyone, whether it's an employee, a partner, a client, uh, a lender, an investor, uh, contracts and agreements need to have sunny day and rainy day provisions in them. Meaning yes. what happens if things aren't working out? How are we going to handle that? And you have to get into some things that are uh, very, that are, that are deep and, and topics that aren't the greatest talk. What happens if I get hit by a bus? What happens if my wife leaves me and I have to split my share of the equity with her? Cause now all of a sudden you might be forced to be business partners with someone that it, like you, do you really want to be business partners with one of your employees, ex-wives? Cause that's usually what a lack of a marital <laughs> joinder agreement might, might provide for you. And, but these are, these are things that, but they matter and they're not fun to talk about, but I, gosh, I can't believe how many people go into everything and it's just only sunny day provisions. But these are the things that mature, sophisticated business owners sit down and talk about with people. And I mean, are, I, I, I doubt I'm going to have a hard time getting an attorney to agree with the, the need for the rainy day clauses because you see more of the rainy day stuff than because if it's sunny and everything's happy, you're not calling the lawyer. Well, it goes it goes a, a step further than that. Um, to me, contracts are mostly about rainy day issues. Um, right. The number of times I have spoken to clients who have said to me, OK, we have a contract. Um, things were great and you look at the contract and what they were doing was not really what it quite says in the contract because they were doing what they kind of wanted to do because they were in sunny day mode and it really didn't matter to them what the contract said. It only really matters what the contract says when things go downhill. People aren't usually pointing to contract provisions when things are good. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's, and you know, like I said, it's the rainy day stuff when everything's falling apart. Now, now look, some, the, the sunny day can, uh, can come up too. I've talked to, man, you know, it's so we're 900 episodes and five years later yeah. into this podcast. And, and for those of you listening, these aren't the only conversations I have on these topics <laughs> because of this, I end up talking about this stuff to people every, all the time. 
like all day, every day. But the rain, the sunny day provisions can become an issue too, because once, it, all right, so you mentioned, uh, all right, you don't have any money. We don't have any traction. We don't have any revenue. And that means that you don't have much of a business and it's probably not worth a whole lot. But a lot of people run into issues later when things are worth something. And now the people are like, well, what do you mean I only get 1%? You know, and, um, and so, the, the sunny, yeah, the sunny day things can come up too. Or the, another thing too is there's nothing, there, there are very few things that are less liquid than ownership <laughs> in your non publicly traded startup. That is, that is very true. Um, it, it's not only um, illiquid because there isn't a market for it, it's illiquid because probably. There are contractual provisions stopping you from selling it, even if you wanted to. Not to mention the difficulty of trying to find a buyer and right. making sure that they can actually buy it because you're you, you can only these you can't sell it to certain types of people. people. What mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. This is probably a good reason to suggest a couple of things. Well, if you're wanting to get into the deep complexity of this stuff, you might want to click the link in the show notes for grellis.com or universalregisteredagents.com who helped with some of the basic setups of, of different stuff. And, you know, setting up a new business and maintaining compliance isn't easy. That's why it's important to have expert help along the way. That's exactly what you'll find at universalregisteredagents.com. All your business setup and maintenance needs, they can help you set up an LLC corporation or nonprofits wherever you're located. In addition, they can also help with registered agent service, a wide variety of corporate services, as well as meeting the needs of independent contractors. Um, you know, I had the guy that's the, the founder and owner of yeah. Universal Registered Agents on and I asked him, uh, do you do all these things? He said, no, actually, a lot of times attorneys like Grellis or whoever might not want to do these basic mundane setups. And they work with companies like yours a lot in a tandem way to get the needs right for hyper specific, like you're in Cupertino. Yeah. These things are a lot more inherently thought out and planned in California where Silicon Valley exists yeah. than they might be in Idaho where That's it true. Doesn't, hasn't really come up a lot. So you look at like the diversity of, of blending different legal teams and, and, and people in now is this one thing I think it's important to remember is if you own a business already and it's already set up, you can still make some of these fundamental changes and prepare for growth. And then some are a lot harder to roll out if you've already got them in hand. Yeah. And, and so a couple of things there. I mean, one is I, I, I fully agree. Um, about using services like theirs for uh, for two reasons. First of all, yes, this is all hyper specific, and 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 we're talking about employment issues in particular. Those are it's you're you're stuck generally with the law of where your service provider is. So yeah. um, as we get into a more remote world, um, the compliance complexity is you you know. Who know, if, uh, that, and that's a great in point. Idaho, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Idaho law. If they're in California, well, it's or California. What, yeah. what about my 270 employees in the Philippines? Where that's even yes. Often, you, you talk about diligence and, and stuff like that. I talk to people all the time. I'm not going to name my competitors, but some of these freelance marketplaces that are out there, what kind of intellectual property assurance do you have? And like some of that, mm -hmm. and those are the problems we solve at our business is making it easy to hire someone in the Philippines right? and have, and, and also from a basic human level, make sure that that person works for a company with a good culture, has health benefits, equipment, like, you know, we do team building activities on, for our clients 
clients teams and all these different stuff. And, and, and then another thing is, are you, do you actually have recourse? Right. You know, like if you're going to hire someone in Bangladesh, that's a one-off <laughs> hire in a freelancer marketplace. If you think that that marketplace is going to give a shit when you have an IP problem later, they won't. Not a chance. They won't. So right. like, those are the kind of problems that we solve and they're done with the, everything we're talking about today. We have a very refined new hire process that involves levels of vetting, like two different uh, security and background checks, like a whole lot of different stuff, including actual enforceable contracts with our employees that do things like back up our NDAs, our intellectual property agreements and stuff like that. And, and, you know, you don't have the stuff in place and someone runs off with all your shit. Don't complain to me about it. Right. And and that, that's very true. And, and, you know, I have a lot of clients who, who want to hire people outside the United States for various reasons. And, um, you can't just take a, there's two sides. You can't just take a U.S. based IP assignment and confidentiality agreement and, you know, use it in every country in the world that doesn't work. So on a legal end, but you're entirely right. Practically speaking, um, you know, what do you do if they violate the contract? If you just go find someone on Upwork or something like that, um, you know, if you don't have someone standing behind it, what good are these contracts? Yeah, right, right. And that's the yeah. thing is, so don't, don't fool yourself into thinking that if you have someone, sorry, China, but if you have someone in China <laughs> and they run off of your IP, that if you show up, oh, China God. doesn't care. They don't <laughs> no. care. They don't give a shit. They will no, laugh they, you they, out they the door. Be, They'll yes. say, go home. So you don't have any support. And then you look at countries like the Philippines who are set up to support the export of labor, the online nature of that and are a lot more friendly and will give you some help. But at the same time, like we've even realized like you're still a foreigner there. Right. Um, yeah. Oh my, my, my David, we get to talk. <laughs> That's see you all, you get to deal with the United States. I'm like trying to move into other countries. Exactly. too. This, this, there's a lot, you got to really understand a lot of it. Okay. So when, and we've talked a little bit. Okay. So we know we got to get a setup. We got to get some things that we could probably go on for like five more episodes about the details of these things. So I think the important thing for those of you listening is find a good legal provider and find people that are going to give you good advice. There's nothing wrong with having a little more information in an agreement than now. Normally I'm a brevity guy. I've kind of, as I've gotten older, I'm like, okay, let's get less words, but these are things Mm -hmm. that that are good. Now you mentioned earlier. So, and I, and I'm going to, I already pivoted the title of this, which we were talking about new, the new navigating the new hire process. I've added the two words for startups uh, yeah. here because we quickly started talking about like payment for equity there's you know there's that that's an issue and i have told so many people they're 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 like well i want to give someone equity would you give i gave them 40 percent. well what's the replacement value <laughs> on that or, you know could you have hired someone anywhere oh lord god <laughs> and saved a lot of your equity and then what provisions do you have in there like is it vest does it define what defines reasonable participation or any of that. So if you have to go that route, what's a good way to bring someone in? Should they be an employee right away? Or if you're doing like a little short term thing, at what point do you realize that, oh, I got to make this person an employee? So, 
this depends. So when you're dealing with employment law in the United States, it depends what state you're in. Um, just to make things slightly more complicated, there's federal law on top of that, and whichever is stricter applies. And helpfully, some states have their own laws that are weaker than federal law for no apparent reason, because the federal law then applies. So it's a little bit weird. But um, the temper depending on the state, the temporary nature of work is a relevant factor in whether someone's an employee or an independent contractor. But it, there are a number of states where that's not even relevant. Um, and um, so California being one, and, uh, that somebody is only working for a few months is not even a relevant factor in determining if they're an employee or not. Um, when are and, they an employee? When they start um, doing work for you? Yes. As long as the, the, uh, California uses a test called the ABC test to determine if someone's an employee, it's not... It wasn't developed by California. It's fairly new in California. It was developed in other states. So there are other states, for example, on the East Coast that have the same test. Um, and under that test, you're an employee if the work that you're, if you're essentially not particularly under the control, sorry, you're not an employee. I'm sorry. If you, if all three of these things are true, you're not under the control of the hiring entity to a significant extent. So you can kind of do things independently. Um, number two, the work you're doing is not part of the general work of the entity that you're working for. And number three, you're actively involved independently in providing these services to other entities. So um, nothing you're in there. You're in, the you're in the business of being a contractor. You're in the business of being a contractor, exactly. So. But which, um, which, so if you look, you look at my company, which we're in the business of doing that, that's a good yes. example. That's yeah. a very good. Example. And then another thing exactly. too. Well, and then, well, then another, cause I get the, one of the common questions we get when we bring in new clients is this, well, do I have, is there tax? No, these aren't, no. Cause these are not employed. These aren't people that are doing work in the United States. Right. Right. And, and that is one big cost issue between an employee and a contractor in the United States. Do you, so for an employee, you're paying, you have withholding obligations, which is not your money, but um, you have payroll tax obligations. You have to pay employer side payroll taxes for employees. You do not pay that for independent contractors. Yep. Um, which is a, a main, a, a big reason that a lot of people, let me just make you a contractor. Right. Yep. Um, and I, and, and I would be remiss in not pointing this one little tidbit out. This is the one area of law where as important as contracts are, having a document signed by the service provider saying they're an independent contractor is nice, but it is not determinative of whether somebody is right. an independent contractor. Right. Um, yeah, and I agree. And it, it, well, I think a lot of people do this too. They're, they're like, well, let me bring this person in as a quote contractor for a yeah. month or two, because I'm going to make sure it goes well. That's an right. employee. Yeah, yeah it's that's an very, employee. Yeah, exactly. That is, that, that is pretty typically an employee. But so let's say you're giving these for this for you, whatever you end up with, you're giving somebody equity. Um, you can give an employee equity. It's not a substitute for cash compensation for an independent contractor. You can do whatever it is you want. So you can give them equity as their only compensation. Um, the important thing, yes, you bring up the idea of vesting. Um, that is critical. Anytime you hire someone to have their equity, whether it's shares or options, vest over time so that they are incentivized or they have to stay with you and provide services to actually get equity. 
Um, and, as, you know, typically as part of a vesting arrangement, you'd have some sort of cliff, some period of time where they don't vest at all. That way you have, I mean, usually it's a year, um, but yeah. sometimes with independent contractors, it's much shorter. Um, well, and but, the reason you do that is because if people fizzle out right away, you don't want a shitload of people on your cap table that own 0.001%. Exactly that they picked up because they were there for the two months that they (laughs) grossly failed and got fired. Right. Exactly. Um, so, you know, so first things first, yes, vesting cliff, absolutely, you know, highly advisable. Um, I've never heard of somebody regretting doing that. Um, and then the amount of equity, I mean, the, you, you do, I mean, Equity is in many ways a finite pool as much as you can, you know, continue granting and authorizing more shares. You, you can't like dilute people, you know, do targeted dilutions of certain people. You can't just do that. So um, the important thing is just to think, A, think long-term in terms of equity. Don't just start granting percentages because you think you should do it or someone asked for it. Think over the next year or two, think what, you know, your next round, what things will look like, and then do some market. There's a lot of resources out there about what's market, you know, over time for different positions. Uh, you know, I'm not where a, you're at I, with the company. I had a past guest that has a website called slicingpie.com. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've and I ha- have you seen it? Have you yeah, seen I've it before? Seen it. Yeah. Okay. So first off, thanks. Thanks, Mike, for building this. I have no <laughs> vested interest in, in telling you to go there. I thought it was super cool. Like I did the, I was recording the episode with him and I said, man, thank you so much for making this because it actually does kind of track and like, you know, it basically, so when you hear the term sweat equity, how much sweat, man, how many drops, how many days, how many hours, how many months, how many milestones, these are the things that you need to think about. Cause if you don't, you can get down the road and people are like, what do you mean? I don't get my shares or if you don't define what it is that you're trying to do or accomplish or any of that, then, well, that's the gray area that, that lawyers make a living off of. They do. And, the last, and there's so oh, many more that make it on making sure so the gray many. area doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. The last thing you want of the last thing you want is a cloud over your capitalization. How many, who owns what shares. Yep. If you want a disaster for your company, that would be, the biggest disaster pretty much that I can think of um, because people will not want to invest in your company if they don't know who owns it. You're true. And I want to, I actually thank you for bringing that up. Cause I'm going to go back to like minute four of yeah. this somewhere. And by the way, I'm probably inaccurate about that. So yeah. somewhere in the beginning, I'm, you mentioned the diligence process and how not yeah. having properly defined who an employee is and, and, and all of that, uh, let's. I want to talk about that for a second. Like, mm-hmm. what, what is specifically what it is in the diligence process that gets offended? You know, like a, here you are. I got the funding, and now I got to go through diligence, and this murkiness exists around the relationship with our employees. Like, can you define that a little more and explain like what it is that that goes wrong there? Yeah. So you know, when you go through diligence, whether this be a funding round or or M and A. Um, you will have a team of lawyers looking through a list of every person that you have had provide services, look at the contracts that you had. Hopefully there are contracts if, you know, 
and they're looking for all sorts of things, mind you. They're they're not just looking for um, labor law compliance. They're looking for IP issues. They're looking for yep. equity related issues. Um, but on the on the labor law side of things, employment law side of things, they're going to ask you to justify why someone has a contractor agreement when clearly, you know, you're, you know, a SaaS startup and you hire a programmer to do your, you know, some, you know, database work for you or some front end work, which is clearly a part of what you do. Um, and if your only justification is they signed a consulting agreement or something like that, that's, you know, it's not going to pass muster. Now, mind you, when I say not pass muster in a, in diligence in a funding round, particularly first funding round, investors are expecting these mistakes. Um, and they're going to be more interested in making sure they're not made in the future, but in M and A it's the diligence is much heavier and they're going to likely require the stockholders of the, of the, your company to agree to indemnify them, you know, out of your pocket, if there's any problems. Um, and who wants to have that on their, you know, over their head for the next few years after an acquisition that they may have to give money back. Um, but, um, as I said, you know, in the, in the diligence process, if you're doing your first funding round, you know, it's unless there's huge egregious problems, if it's just kind of the standard, you know, you hired a couple of people at the beginning as contractors and they really weren't, but you're transitioning them over to being employees that's probably not going to stop someone from investing at that stage. Later on, it'll be a bigger issue. With me again, again, with me today is David Siegel and David's a partner at Grellis Shaw Law Firm. And you can go to Grellis, it's G-R-E-L-L-A-S.com. Uh, I would imagine you get a lot of exposure to a lot of interesting things in uh, out there in Cupertino. Uh, there, I, I've always been very happy that people in that region have, they seem to think with a founder first mentality. If you've ever uh, looked at like what a safe agreement, SAFE, yeah. simple agreement for future equity, that is a very simple, straightforward thing that's really founder friendly created by, that's a, that that was given birth to in your area. Maybe you invented it. I don't know. No, but not me. You, There's a lot. Of, <laughs> hey, hey, took a shot. That would have been great if you were like, yes, we were Actually, the first person. I would have been like, wow, that was supernatural. But you, but you don't need a lot. You don't need to be supernatural to find the things out there that are work. There's a lot of different vessels, a lot of different products, a lot of different opinions. And some of these things make a lot of sense. Um, I, I, you know, so I just, just recently had a birthday and it always makes me reflect about so many different things. And I mean, I, I, I do things completely differently now than I might've 15 years ago. I, right. in my book, million dollar bedroom, I talk about undoing the, the ball of rubber bands. It is mm -hmm. so much easier to not create the ball of rubber oh. bands. <laughs> Uh, cause if you have to stop and, and I've had, oh man, I, at 47 years old, I've done different businesses and I've, you know, worked hard with so many other people to make them successful, but I've had some borderline horror stories, mainly yeah. related to having to stop what we were doing or things that stifled growth, why we had to stop and undo the ball of rubber bands. So right. it, 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 I know that you've got 
you can't go too far into it, but what's a, what's a situation where someone could create that ball of rubber bands and be forced to stop what they're doing? Like whether, whether you have to tell, whether you tell a story and don't name those involved yeah. uh, for I, I, whatever yeah. reason, but what, what's it, let's give like a kind of a practical example and I'll lead. So I used to own a ticket brokerage and, and it grew really quickly. And at one mm-hmm. point I was really commingled, meaning my personal finances were involved in the business finances. It started as kind of a side hustle. And at one point I had to, ba- we had to basically stop all, all, all purchasing for 10 days, which oh, might not God. sound like a long period, but for no, us, that was forever. And we yeah. had to go back and kind of separate everything. And we still were able to sell stuff. But in that type of business, buying and selling are a key ingredient of all of it. Sure. We had to stop piling on purchase orders and other stuff like that until we went back and straightened out like thousands of transactions. And, you know, that was a long time ago and I learned a lot from it. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you're looking at is if you eventually have, it's very difficult to change the tires on a car that's driving on the highway. (laughs) That is true. Um, Yeah, I mean, the the repeated example of where I see businesses imploding um, from sort of a personnel side of things um, is the deadlock situation, which is kind of tangential to our conversation, but it, it, it is one to keep in mind as people are bringing on new partners to a business is, are you creating a setup that has uh, a potential for, or a significant potential for deadlock um, amongst the defined, de- defined, I know what yeah. you mean, but define deadlock yeah. for the listeners. The classic example would be um, two people getting into business together and they both are 50-50 owners with 50-50 control and any decision requires a unanimous consent. Um, but it's not the only way to get to that. There are other, there are all sorts of structures and I see companies that decide to set up structures that have these veto points that um, make it um impractical or impossible for the business to go forward if there's a falling out. Um, and um, more often than not, those situations, that that's the, that's the most, um, those are the most repeated examples of failure that I see that are um, agnostic as to what the underlying talents are or products are and things like that. Um, but from an employment perspective, I, you know, there are states, California being one, but not the only that, um, certain employment law, um, violations, um, the owners of the business can be personally liable. And that's an, that's an area that I think people should be aware of. If, you know, if you're giving California's example that, you know, I deal with a lot, you know, um, the managing people at a company are personally liable for non-payment of minimum wage. And, you know, when I say non-payment of minimum wage, if you hire somebody as an independent contractor who should have been an employee and you're not paying them at least minimum wage, then you've violated minimum wage laws and um, they can sue you personally for that. Um, which, and which, are rare I, instant, which are rare instances of piercing the veil, as yes. I believe is the term for that, yeah. of the protections yeah. that you may be afforded. So exactly. don't fool yourself into believing that incorporating or being an LLC or having a, a separate entity, is, it doesn't mean you can do improper shit. 
Right. That, yeah. I mean, yeah. people focus on, I mean, there's piercing the corporate veil, um, but there are, there are other exceptions where you can be personally liable, this being one of them. And I, we had a client who we came to us because they were in this situation and we had to negotiate something and they had to take out a second mortgage. I mean, it was, you know, a horrible situation for them. It, yep. You know, the company survived it, but um there's no there's no undoing that at that point yeah and that and that piercing the veil thing and maybe that is that my most professional statement of the is just if you do improper shit uh don't or whatever that's the there you go that's the episode quote for that is the yes that is whatever (laughs) yes it might be it might be the it might be the most accurate on some levels now so you know thank you so much for joining me once again a big thanks to today's episode sponsor universal registered agents there's a link in the show notes where you can learn more about their business set up your new business and maintain all aspects of your business compliance their goal is to make your job easier so you can focus on what you do best which is running your business you can connect with them by visiting the link in the show notes you can also use the show notes to learn more about David Siegel or contact grellis.com. Now, in regards to their firm, they specialize in startup technology and venture law practice. And this is a specialty. And I want to actually, uh, when I'm speaking, I, I, are you, are you, are you a founder of Grellis? No, I'm, I'm not. A founder right. So we will forego what I often call the founders freestyle. Uh, but what, here, there's I, there's I, something important that I think that matters, and so I'm not an attorney, and I and anything I said in this episode is should not be constituted as legal advice. <laughs> there you go. I learned that one a long time ago. Now, but that's an important thing. You're going to hear a lot of stuff from a lot of people, and I just speak from my own experience. But I'm, I'm the first person to understand that I'm not an attorney. And with that, with matters related to this or your startup or the setup, I think it's really, really important. Okay, so universalregisteredagents.com will be the first people to tell you that they don't know about things like equity sharing agreements and a lot of this other crap. That's not what they do. Go find a specialist like Grellis that understands local, national, and bigger picture implications when it comes to this because you don't want to have to undo the ball or rubber bands later. Yeah. And, and, and one thing I would say is um, lawyers have value, but if you're a startup, you can't spend all your money on legal fees. So um, pick the right things. That's what, you know, universal registered agents being an example, that's, you know, there are things they can do much cheaper, more, more cheaply than it's a lawyer can do. Right. And save your, it's save like your fund. Not, not processing yeah. your own payroll, like call exactly. Gusto. They've been a past sponsor of Startup Hustle so many times, but these are things that there's levels of efficiency and repetition that certain platforms or technology or people. And I hear this a lot. They're like, well, I don't want to call the attorney. That guy charges me $500 an hour. And I tell people the same thing every time. You're not paying for that hour. You're paying for all of the hours that add up to the one you're paying for. And within, I have literally had 15 minutes to the $125 (laughs) <laughs> bill or whatever, where I have saved 
hundreds of thousands of dollars because right. that person, that's what you're paying for. You're paying for the past experience, the wisdom, the input, and the specificity. If you have the right legal providers that will help you with what you want. What are you trying to avoid as someone that specializes in immigration law, <laughs> writing, writing yep. your, your equity sharing agreement, unless your co-founder's coming from somewhere else. And then maybe right. that, I, I might be wrong about that. Okay. So as, we can, as we conclude the episode today, like what's the, I mean, what's the best advice you could give for startups that are hiring the, the, you know, that are navigating this process? Yeah. I mean, the best advice I have for them is that, um, it's hard to do everything right at the beginning. Um, if, you know, chances are everyone you are bringing on as a service provider is an employee by law. I mean, that's just the way it is. So at a minimum, if you have no funding, um, and you have to consider people, um, independent contractors, understand the risks that you're taking in doing that, um, transition them to being employees as soon as you do have funding. Um, and if there's a separation, get a separation agreement um, and be respectful. You should always be respectful anyway, but this is be selfishly respectful so that you don't, you know, convince someone to sue you. Yeah. And when I, and just, I like to come back with the real, the real plain, you know, like I said, I'm not an attorney. You talk about a separation agreement, like what does that mean? If I've done it in the past, if someone worked for me for a while and then just either roles changed or whatever and they need to go, I, I, I would continue to pay someone for a couple yes. months in some situations. Mm -hmm. And, and not tear, and you know, don't put people in desperate situations and they won't do desperate things. And some of that's just as a, as a thanks for, for participating for a while. And some of it's also just good business. And, you know, if no one wants to come work for a company that has a reputation of being hostile towards former or current employees, and yes. these, these things are out there. And it also sets a lot, it has a lot to do with your culture. Cause if your existing employees see how shitty you are to the ones that Mm -hmm. to the ones that need to be cleared out. It, it's not a good thing because what you're going to find later is the way that people resign is going to feel hostile in the beginning. Right. You know, they're like, I saw how you handled letting John or Jane yes. go. So here I am. And I'm just saying I'm out. Yes. And you know, you're going to run it. It just becomes a lot more problematic. And really in yeah. the end is if I like to say, you know, you, sometimes you have to free people up for their own future. If you have the wrong people in the wrong roles and the, and you, you kind of owe it to yourself to make that change you and, you know, but the thing I want to say in the end is you can think you have the loyal employees that love and support everything you do. And they, they love you and all of it. The moment you let them go, you are going to, you have a very, very different situation yeah. most of the time. Meaning like I've had people that, you know, I shut down a business once cause we moved on and I right. kind of, this is, you know, many, many, many years ago. And I went from having people that loved me to a couple that hated me. I'm like, I didn't short anyone out of something. It was just a change. It was disruptive for them. And what happens to the world? Yeah. And you never yeah. know how people are going to act on the way out the door. So you do have to kind of, make sure that you take care of that. You protect yourself too. Exactly. But you know, I, I don't know. There's been so many headlines, you know, what is it? Better.com fired like 900 yeah. people on a Zoom call. <laughs> Not professional. No. Not the no. way to do it. At every, 
every termination is a message to all of your other employees. Yes. About how they're going to be treated next. So I can only imagine how many other employees quit right after that, which could have, could have been part of their plan. Could have been. I don't know, but, but you look at the reputation loss that, and a lot of these, so right now there's all this, you know, startups laying this off, laying that off. But if you read the articles, you'll see that a lot of them in the fine print say, you know, they're giving them two, three, four months mm-hmm. yep. of a separation agreement. Because if you give people a bridge to get to what they're doing next, they're, for most, for the most part, I find that they're they're respectful, they understand it, but write a good agreement that says they're, you know, if you're going to give yeah. something away, it's okay to ask for something in return. Like you're agreeing to this multi-month severance package where you're going to do that, but I'm going to need you to agree to not go tell the world that you think I'm, I'm a jerk or, right. or disparage it or whatever. And you'll right. just be shocked at some of the petty stuff that, that people will do in yep. life. Which is why we have attorneys and courts and yeah, and all that and, side of things. Yes. And maybe social media. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? So well, David, thank you so much for for joining us and taking some time out of your day to chat with us. Uh, once again, if you want to learn more about Grella Shaw, there's a link in the show notes. David, I'll catch up with you down the road. Hopefully not because I'm calling or needing help. <laughs> I, I agree. It's been great talking to you as well. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. Like we do it.